from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, verses 27 through 39. If you want to follow along with the Pew Bible in front of you, you can find this passage on page 59 of the New Testament portion of the Bible. Listen now for a word from God. After this, he, that is Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi gave a great banquet for him in his house. And there was a loud, large crowd of tax collectors and others sitting at the table with them. The Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Then they said to him, John's disciples, like the disciples of the Pharisees, frequently fast and pray, but your disciples eat and drink. Jesus said to them, you cannot make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is still with them, can you? The days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and sews it on an old garment. Otherwise, the new will be torn, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But the new wine must be put in fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new wine, but says, the old is good. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Loving and living God, as we turn our hearts and minds to consider your word to us, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit upon that word and upon our hearts and minds, that you would breathe your spirit into this text, that it would become for us a living and active word, that it would make its way into the deep recesses of our hearts and our minds, that we might be transformed from the word and the good news that it contains. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to start this morning with a question, and that question is, when was the last time that you had a really, really significant or meaningful meal? What is a meal that stands out in your memory for being meaningful or, or significant or memorable? Maybe it was a recent Thanksgiving dinner with extended family. 
Or maybe it was the last meal on a recent vacation as you were trying to savor every last minute and second of vacation before getting back in the car or on the plane and returning to normal life. Maybe it was a quiet meal with your partner or dear friend. Or maybe it was a noisy, busy meal with all of the kids from the neighborhood. Some will find it easy to recall a meaningful or significant meal. Others, it may take a little bit longer to remember, and and that's not surprising. In our contemporary culture, the significance of meals seems to slip a little more each day. For some, meals are simply an opportunity to consume enough calories until the next meal. Meals are for fuel, and that's just about it. The goal is to eat as quickly as possible, often with a phone or a laptop open, and get back to work or living or whatever else you were doing. To be fully transparent, I easily fall into this way of eating. You'll often find me in the lunch hour at my desk working while eating some bit of leftovers that I brought from the night before. For much of middle school and high school, my brother and I were competitive swimmers, and we would return home from evening practice sometimes around 7 or 8 o'clock at night. We would find the dinner waiting for us, warming on the stove. We would make our plates, and we would eat that food as fast as humanly possible. There were no guardrails because my parents had already gone downstairs and started the evening of television. They would welcome us, but they weren't going to tell us to slow down or to take breaths or to chew our food entirely. Food is fuel. We had things to do. We had to get back to work or go to bed. My wife would be happy to tell you about how hard this habit is for me to break, even in adulthood. So in our day and age, it can feel next to impossible to slow down and enjoy a meal with others. There are just too many carpool routes or work calls or volunteer meetings in the evening. It's easier and certainly more efficient to eat lunch at our desks than to chat with our coworkers. It's even family meals can seem fragmented and fraught. Kids refuse to eat the food that we have lovingly prepared for them. The kicking under the table turns into name calling or vice versa. Our teenage children refuse to give us more than one-word answers, even though we berate them with question after question. And we all know the creeping, distracting presence of the smartphones, the computers that we all carry around with us every day. This Lent, we're going to focus on the importance of meals in the Christian tradition and their transformative potential. We're going to go all in on belonging. And this may seem to some of us as an odd way to spend our Lent together. After all, isn't Lent all about self-denial and self-examination? Don't we typically give things up or take on rigorous spiritual practices during Lent? 
Why all this talk about meals and eating and food? Those other ways of approaching Lent aren't wrong, and we've, we've explored those ways of practicing Lent in the past. Last year, in fact, we took a, a deeper dive into the spiritual practices for our first and focus study. But this year's Lenten journey has a different focus. It's about maintaining and building community. It's about how meals can be a source of that community. So we'll think together about how meals, from the Lord's Supper that we celebrate to the ordinary meals that we share with friends and coworkers and families, how these meals can be an opportunity for connection and for transformation. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we talk often about remembering. We remember the life of Jesus. We remember his teachings. We remember the sacrificial way that he lived his life. We remember his tragic death and his resurrection. But at this table, we're also remembered. We're put back together. We're integrated again into a community of belonging. This table reminds us of our place in the body of Christ. And so we start our Lenten journey this morning with a text from Luke 5 that I read earlier. And like many stories in the Gospels, this is a story where having just a little bit of the information about the the world behind the text can enhance our understanding of the text. And so the first thing to note is the place of meals in the ancient world, the the value or the significance of meals uh, from a social, cultural, and religious perspective. Meals in antiquity marked one's social standing and their religious identity in the ancient world. A Near Eastern proverb says, I saw them eating and I knew who they were. I saw them eating and I knew who they were. Meals and eating together is a mode or or a way of communicating identity. Meals demonstrated one's place in the very stratified world of antiquity. Those with power and privilege ate with others who had power and privilege. Like eats with like was something of a rule in antiquity. As New Testament scholar Eric Barreto puts it, meals were, maybe meals are, a test case for belonging. Meals indicate who's in and who's out, who's welcome and who's not. Meals are a test case in belonging. The second thing to know about this text is a little bit more about Levi, specifically his profession as a tax collector. You may remember that at this time, the Holy Land was subjected to the rule of Rome. And in order to pay for and fund the ambitious building plans of Rome, occupied territories like the Holy Land had to pay significant taxes. They had to participate in this extensive system of taxation, and tax collectors like Levi or Zacchaeus in chapter 19 of the Gospel of Luke played a key role in this system. 
tax collectors were most likely fellow Jews, at least the tax collectors in the Holy Land, and they were regarded by many as corrupt and as traitors. They were widely despised by their fellow Jews. They were seen as treasonous for working with their Gentile occupiers. In short, they were outcasts. And the third thing to notice about this story is that Levi, this outcast, surrounds himself with other outcasts. He surrounds himself with the sorts of people that you probably wouldn't invite to your family dinners. The religious leaders complain that Jesus and the disciples are sharing meals with sinners. Sinners here probably refers to two groups of people in particular. First, Jews who had publicly broken with the Mosaic law and who had been excluded from the synagogue worship. And Gentiles who were, in the view of many Jews in antiquity, simply lawless and godless by nature. Sinners stood on the outside of the social and religious life of their neighbors. And so the religious leaders complain because Jesus is breaking all of the rules for meals in antiquity. He's violating the logic of like eats with like. And while it may be missed in English translation, The complaint of the religious leaders suggests that this is not a one-off event. The question about eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners is directed to the disciples. Maybe not Jesus exclusively. You see, the, the you in verse 30 is plural. If we were to translate that verse in good old southern vernacular, it would be, why do y'all eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners. What are y'all doing, is the question. And the structure of the question then suggests a connection between discipleship and the way that Jesus shares meals. Disciples of Jesus are those who, like Jesus, sit at the table with religious, economic, social, and political outcasts. And Jesus' response to the religious leader's complaint, emphasizes this as well. His eating in this way was not accidental or unintentional. He didn't simply walk into the wrong table. Instead, it's central to his mission and his ministry. He says, I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The meal in Luke 5 demonstrates Jesus' radical inclusiveness, his total acceptance of those pushed to the margins of his society. In so doing, the story presents two contrasting ideas of salvation, as one New Testament scholar has noted. On the one hand, there is the notion of salvation by segregation. This logic says that individual and communal well-being is guaranteed, it's safeguarded when we create ever tighter boundaries around group identity and group behavior. On the other hand, the meal in Luke 5 represents what we might call salvation by association. 
Personal and communal well-being is guaranteed not by tighter boundaries, but by more porous ones. Not by tightening who is in and who is out, but by welcome and hospitality. Salvation comes by inclusion, not exclusion. Fred Craddock, a New Testament scholar who taught for a number of years at Candler School of Theology, insists that the narrative of this story forces a decision on those of us, like us, who read this text today. We must decide if we are at the table with Jesus, tax collectors and sinners, or if we sit back complaining with the critics. In our practices and in our hearts, do we locate ourselves at the table with outcasts or do we stand back with the critics? Of course, we all want to say that we're at the table with Jesus and the sinners. For centuries, Christians have used a text like this one to push a narrative of Christian supremacy, especially over against our Jewish neighbors. We claim that we have a more open table than others. But if we're honest, and Lent is a time for honesty, if we're honest, we know it is far too easy to slip back among the critics. A controversy related to last week's Super Bowl offers a valuable lesson about this tendency. And I'm not talking about the amount of time that Taylor Swift spent on the screen, whether it was too much or not enough or just right. Nor am I talking about whether or not Travis should have proposed to her after winning the Super Bowl. I'm not talking about whether or not Alicia Keys' first note was on key or off. I am the least qualified person to make that judgment. And I'm not even talking about whether or not the San Francisco 49ers should have been better prepared for the overtime rules. I'll leave that to Tony. I'm talking instead about the controversy around the He Gets Us ad campaign. A number of you by hand, I'm sure, saw this, recognize it, have seen it. This year's ad featured people washing the feet of other characters in the still images of the commercial. It's an obvious allusion to Jesus's washing the feet of his disciples in John chapter 13. And here are just a few of the still images in the commercial. A cop washes the feet of a young black man in a dark, dirty alley. A middle-aged woman washes the feet of a young woman outside of a family planning clinic while pro-life protesters stand in the background. A teenage girl washes the feet of an older woman surrounded by empty bottles of alcohol, suggesting a daughter washing the feet of her alcoholic mother. The commercial ends with the text on the screen, Jesus didn't teach hate. He washed feet. He gets us. All of us. 
This is a powerful portrait of Christ's welcome and service. It is certainly good to be reminded that Jesus didn't and doesn't preach hate. The creators of the He Gets Us campaign have invested millions of dollars to help remedy what they think are misperceptions about the character and meaning and ministry of Jesus in the wider public. It amounts to a PR campaign for Jesus. Not unlike the PR campaign featuring Buddy Christ in the movie Dogma. And if you got that reference, we should meet afterwards uh, at coffee. In the days following the Super Bowl, one thing became apparent. No one on either end of the theological spectrum liked these commercials very much. Neither end of the, the theological spectrum cared for the ad. Conservative voices labeled the ad as liberal BS. The editor of the Babylon Bee concluded that the ad is either trying to sell Jesus to leftists or it's using Jesus to sell a leftist political movement. One pastor claimed the ad represents a Gnostic heresy that turns Jesus into a divine social worker. A pastor in Northern Ireland, so perturbed by the ad's message, went so far as to create his own video campaign, He Saves Us, in order to correct and redeem the theologically ambiguous portrait of Jesus, and He Gets Us ad. And the commercial did not fare better among progressives. The strongest critique of the ad is not so much about its message, but about the funders behind the campaign. Several articles have revealed the connections between the ad campaign and the Green family, the billionaire owners of the Hobby Lobby uh, uh, chain. An article in the Texas Observer insists that the sponsors of the ads don't actually believe in the Jesus they are selling. The article goes on to demonstrate the ways in which the sponsors have supported anti-LGBTQ organizations and other nonprofits that the Southern Poverty Law Center has identified as hate groups. Others point out the simple economic implications of the ad. Rather than spend millions of dollars to broadcast a one-minute commercial, why not put the money to different use? Why not feed the hungry or provide affordable housing? Love it or hate it, the response to the Jesus Gets Us ad is a, a story, it's, a, it's an illustration of how quickly we can move away from the table, the table of Christ's extravagant, inclusive welcome, and join the critics in the story. It's so easy for us to police who deserves to be at the table and who doesn't, who deserves to be in these pews and who doesn't, who deserves to represent Jesus and who doesn't. As much as we celebrate the undeserved grace of God, we too easily slip into the salvation by segregation way of thinking. And to be clear, people on all ends of the political spectrum do this. 
The story from Luke 5 reminds us that our personal well-being, the well-being of this faith community, and the well-being of the world depends on our salvation by association, by an opening up the boundaries and allowing others inside. As we prepare to celebrate communion this morning, may we remember the wide reach of God's grace. May we know deep inside our bones that we are welcome here. Not because we are worthy, not because we have the right theology or the right answers, not because we have done enough good works or abstained from enough bad ones. We are welcome here because Christ welcomes us here. Christ welcomes us to this table. As you come forward for communion, you're invited to listen to the lyrics of the song, All Are Welcome Here, by the group The Many. It's a wonderful song that captures beautifully the message of Luke 5 and much of what we hope to explore this Lenten season. Here are the words of the chorus. Come and remember who you are here. Do this to remember who I am. Come and remember you belong here. All belong here. At this table, we remember Jesus, but we also remember that we are individually and as a community of sinners saved by grace. And as Christ's disciples, may we seek to live at the table with Christ, sharing life with sinners and outcasts alike, In our hearts and in our lives, may we embody the welcome that Christ modeled. Amen.